Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, or the, actually the released book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Barry Schwartz. He is a synonologist, and he is also, or was also, the documenting photographer of the Sturp Project. So let me tell you a little bit more about Barry. He was, as I mentioned, the official documenting photographer, photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, also known as Sturp. Sturp was the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud in 1978. Today, he plays an absolutely influential role in Shroud research and education as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website at uh, www.shroud.com. It is the oldest, the largest, and the most extensive Shroud research resource on the internet. It has more than 15 million visitors from over 160 countries. Um, in addition to that, he, in, in 2009, he founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association, also known as STERA, and it's a nonprofit 501c3 corporation, uh, and to which he has donated the website and as well his extensive shroud photographic collection, as well as many other important shroud resources in order to preserve and maintain these materials and make them available for future future research and study. And currently he is the uh, uh, the president of Stara. Barry, welcome and so good to have you. Thanks, good to be back again, Guy. Absolutely, it's so good uh, to have you as well. So we're just gonna jump right in. And uh, you know, shroud.com is such a resource and I used it like crazy when I was researching uh, my book and I know everybody else uses it and whatever. So tell us a little bit about the history of shroud.com. Well, you know, it, it kind of goes back to about 1995 when uh, the last sort of piece of scientific evidence was presented to me that ultimately convinced me that this piece of cloth um, was an artifact of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. There wasn't a commentary on whether he was resurrected, whether he was the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, Basically, just uh, my my whole idea was that the public did not have access to what I was privileged to be a part of and had complete access to. And it occurred to me that um, perhaps I should do something like build a website. And here's how that started. I got a phone. I had, I had just sort of become convinced uh, with conversations with Alan Adler and several other people that the shroud had to be authentic. And a friend of mine called me and he said, Hey, you know, that shroud thing you're involved with. And I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, I know that shroud thing I'm involved with. <laughs> he said, well, you know, it turns out that's, that's just a, a, a photo made by Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> I thought he was joking. And, and so I, <laughs> I laughed and he said, no, no, I'm being serious. And I said, wait a minute you're being serious. Where are you getting your information? And he said, well, my wife and I were checking out at the grocery store. It was obviously I'm one of the tabloids. And I had this epiphany at that moment. I realized that here I am privileged. I have access to every bit of STIRP data. And it was all published, but in peer-reviewed scientific journals that in, in those days, if you wanted to access them, you had to have access to a university research library at best uh, to be able to find these journals. And who does that? Nobody. I mean, scientists, a few handful of people maybe. And so at that moment in time, I realized that I had, I was sitting on this resource and I saw, so I got the idea. I said, well, maybe I should build a website. And interestingly enough, while I was talking to this guy, there was a manila folder on my desk 
And I wrote four words, consider building a website. <laughs> and that was the moment where I guess God reached down and smacked me upside the head and said, listen, now here's the real plan. <laughs> and so at that moment in time, there was no easy way to build a website. Uh, we didn't have websites that build websites. There were very few even books on building websites. But I did get a book on learning to write HTML code. And I looked at it and it was actually quite simple. HTML is not a very complex uh, code requirement. And I'd already written similar code in basic and, and uh, in writing code for my Chiron character generator that was part of my video editing system. And so, and, and that code for the Chiron was very similar to HTML with embedded commands to tell the browser how to show it up on the screen. So I, sat down and uh, my son and I were on vacation up in uh, for over the Christmas holidays up in Lake Tahoe. We got snowed in one night. So I pulled out a yellow ruled tablet. This was before I had any laptops. This is when everybody still had big desktop computers. And on a yellow ruled tablet with this book on HTML <laughs> sitting in a motel uh, at North Shore Lake Tahoe, I started writing HTML code that would become the opening front page of Shroud.com. We got back on January 1st and we unloaded the vehicle and brought all the stuff in the house. And I sat down at the computer and spent the next three weeks <laughs> doing nothing else, <laughs> but working on this website. And on January 21st, 1996, I put Shroud.com online. Uh, I had no clue where this was going to lead. And the idea was basically just to share the stirp stuff and preserve it. Because remember, by then we'd had the radiocarbon dating and a lot of the work of stirp was completely being ignored, even though it was the only work based on direct physical examination of the shroud. So, I mean, you can't get much better than taking a reading directly from the cloth uh, and uh, I've often pointed out to people, I said, you know, because uh, everybody knows, uh, make it very clear, I'm Jewish. Um, and somebody said, well, you know, why aren't you a Christian? I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I point an instrument at a piece of cloth and I pull the trigger to take a reading and it collects that data, that instrument doesn't care if I'm Christian or Jewish or Muslim <laughs> or pagan. It doesn't matter to the instrument. It collects the data. That data is then recovered, analyzed, written into peer-reviewed scientific articles and submitted for publication in journals. That's called science. That's how it works. So from my point of view, building the website kind of opened a door that I didn't even realize I was opening. And of course, it's grown dramatically since then and uh, continues to grow. And we've got another update. I've already started working on it. It'll come out in November. It'll be the last update of this year. But basically it was the motivation of talking with Alan Adler and becoming convinced that the shroud was authentic. And then shortly thereafter, having this conversation with the guy who's he and his wife were learning about the shroud at the checkout counter of the grocery <laughs> store. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. And so I created Shroud.com. And that may well be the most single important thing that I've done in my entire life. Although well, the, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, actually, when you think about, um, you know, the key events of the Shroud, I mean, obviously, 33 AD and the resurrection or if you obviously if you believe in that which i do but you know 33 ad then maybe there's a, you know a handful of other events uh you know the the shambury fire and then you have the the stirp certainly in 1978 and then you have 1988 the disaster of the radiocarbon dating well this right here you know if you can if you can make knowledge of the shroud available to not just scientists, but to everyone, that in and of itself is also a pretty critical event in the history of the shroud. So, uh, you know, that is that is a, that's a big, big deal. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, people have often asked me, how did you get the name shroud.com? 
And my answer is very simple. In 1995, it was available. <laughs> that, was, that was it. Yeah, I, I was even surprised when I applied for it and it was available. And I said, oh, okay, well, let me lock that up. And that was the, near the end of 95, uh, after I'd made the decision to build a website. Uh, and then we did our little Christmas holiday and did a little backcountry snowmobiling mm -hmm. and uh, got snowed in and I started writing. Code. <laughs> so uh, God snowed you in and said, write that code. Yeah, <laughs> How funny. So, and, uh, at, and even back in, uh, in, in the late nineties, uh, 99, I think there were, you wrote two different articles one of the one of them was uh, the role of the internet and in the future of the shroud, and then the role of the internet and uh, current shroud research. Right. And um, uh, yeah, so, tell us about that and how prescient those were. Yeah, it's 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 funny because I was sitting there thinking of all these possibilities because I'd been on the internet for about a year by then, and I thought, you know, the the internet would be a great place to put all this shroud material that I have. Um, and so I, I went ahead and, you know, started putting all this together, but I never anticipated that it would explode two years later into what it became. When I wrote the uh, first paper, uh, The Role of the Internet and the Future of Shroud Research, that was 97. So the website was one year old, approximately. Mm. And I wrote that article, and it, it was just me sort of putting in writing all of the things that I could foresee that the internet would allow. Um, two years later in 99, when I wrote the second article, the role of the internet in current shroud research, it had already begun. And when I went back 25 years later, just a couple of years ago, and I reread that article, I realized that it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy because everything that I said the internet could be in the world of the shroud became reality because of shroud.com mm -hmm. and of course that began uh, uh, uh that opened the door and now there are literally hundreds of websites on shroud on the shroud but but we have the uh, great privilege of being the first serious website yeah. on of Shroud, and of course with that makes us the oldest and the largest one because i keep adding to it <laughs> <laughs> and you do. And uh, and then, there, like you said, there's another uh, update coming in November and it uh, it's going to be enormous, I'm yeah. sure. And, um, well, you know, what's interesting, though, as those uh, as those trends came together when I was in high school, you know, one of the things that we had to learn was how to read those those cards to do research so you could find your book in the in the aisles and with the dust and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, and now I. I wrote my book and I did a ton of research, you know, over about a year, 18 months. And uh, it was all done online. I mean, I would have never, ever thought of going into a library and trying to find something. Well, it's a lot harder now to find it in books because you can't type in a couple of words and do a search. You have to go through every page of the book to find stuff. So yeah. the internet yeah. really uh, magnified the ability of people to to find information and that's the beauty i remember years ago somebody said but the invention of the printing press was a milestone in human history except that only rich people could afford printing presses <laughs> one of the greatest things about the internet is anyone can publish on the internet anyone you don't have to be rich Matter of fact, most Shroudies aren't. <laughs> I don't know too many rich ones. <laughs> um, and so people could now present their information on the internet and it's opened it up for everyone. So I see the internet as the next giant leap in being able to store and uh, transfer information. Um, and it's no longer only accessible to a, a, a select few, but to everybody mm. of course, it brings with it a whole new set of problems too there's a lot of junk on the internet and a lot of nasty stuff on the internet but when you have a, a cross section of the entire planet you're going to have some bad along with the good because that's the way the world is but um i'm not sure that i was so much prescient in in writing that article as just realizing what this new set of tools could do and of course 
the tools keep growing in, in power and in capability to a point where look what we what we can do now we before we started recording here we were talking a little bit about ai uh, i'm not a huge fan because it's got a long ways to go before i consider it reliable enough and i can give you my word that i will not allow any ai generated articles on shroud.com i want to and- know who's behind it and if it's somebody who's used chat gpt to write an article we're not going to publish it but we don't publish unsolicited manuscripts anyway we stopped publishing original material on shroud.com because we didn't have the wherewithal to properly peer review these articles or these papers because even though i had uh, 14 people on an editorial review committee about half the papers that were submitted there was no one in our 14 group of 14 qualified to evaluate those papers that's why you submit your work to a peer-reviewed journal of the appropriate discipline where other experts of that same discipline can review your work. So people were mistaking the articles we published as peer-reviewed, and I, I didn't like that. I didn't want to be misleading anyone. So uh, I spoke to our board of directors, and we changed our policy. We no longer will accept or publish Uh, unsolicited or unpublished, previously unpublished material, we always recommend that you submit to a journal. And once it's published in a journal, send us the link, we'll link to the journal. That carries a lot more weight than us sticking it on shroud.com. We are not a blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you're it. It's definitely uh, to your point, an, an information resource and a and a valid, you know, valid information. And you're so right. There's there's so much trash out there, generally, and then there's certainly, uh, you know, certain quality and certain scientific standards of papers that are out there, right. and uh, you know, and sometimes you know you have to, you definitely have to read three or four different papers on one thing to really make sure that, you know, everything that they're saying actually all kind of jives together and comes yeah. together. Well, we, we are an archive. I keep reminding people that, mm. yeah, it's in the format of a website, but we're primarily an archive. Mm. Uh, only do we publish the materials, you know, on a day-to-day basis of what's going on in the Shroud world. We're also the archive of the British Society newsletter of Shroud Spectrum International, the journal that was produced by Dorothy Crispino, may she rest in peace, uh, of Collegimento Prosindone, which is the Italian journal by Emanuela Marinelli and her brother, Maurizio. Uh, we're now publishing the Italian, original Italian print versions in Italian on our site. Uh, we've done so with the Mexican Centro and published their journals. So we've become uh, kind of a, a, oh, and and Rex Morgan Shroud News out of uh, Australia from back in the 80s. So we've become kind of the clearinghouse of all these different Shroud-related journals. And so that instead of having to run to disparate places to find all these things, one website, and it's all there. And that kind of collects and centralizes that information and makes it far more usable for somebody like yourself who's researching a book. You can pretty much find just about everything you're looking for right there on our website. But after about two or three years, the website got so big <laughs> that I could no longer find things that I knew I put somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we then got a search engine that searches only within our site. Mm. People don't realize that, uh, you know, our website has no advertising. We don't permit any advertising. Well, this is a free search engine, but on the response page, when you do a search, you would normally see a bunch of ads. So we pay an extra $20 a month for this free search engine. (laughs) So there are no ads (laughs) on any page of our website. And that way you can, you know, uh, credibly search through the website and find pretty much whatever you're looking for. And these days, people have become far more adept at using search engines. They've become very, you know, kind of uh, popular and uh, everybody uses them now so that it's no longer a great mystery. And if you know how to use a search engine, you should generally be able to find just about anything you're looking Mm. for on our website. Um, uh, There are always going to be limitations, um, but 
you know, uh, as the technology improves, even with AI, uh, I'm sure that AI will become part of future search engines if it's not already part of them now. Right, right. And and it's definitely progressing. But let's hold off on AI because that uh, we'll have the whole series of questions there. Now, you talked about uh, being the archive for various uh, different international things, the BSTS, the British Society of the Tur Turin Shroud, and then the Italian yeah. Shroud site and the Mexican. And uh, But you're also doing something interesting with some cassettes. So tell us about that. So um, you were in Houston. We met, uh, by the way, for the audience, this this guy is sitting down, but if he were to stand up, you'd, you'd get to see his belly button. He's like, <laughs> what, 6'5", I think? 6'3", uh, 6'3". Okay. Yeah, because when I first met Guy at the uh, uh, Funeral Museum in, in, in Houston, I had to <laughs> get a ladder to say hi. <laughs> at any rate, um, Rudy Dichtel, one of our former STIRP team members, um, had donated a bunch of his materials, his shroud materials, to the Houston Funeral Museum uh, to add to their collection. And one of the things he found amongst his materials was a set of cassettes, audio cassettes, recordings of the final STIRP meeting in New London, Connecticut, 19, October of 1981. And um, Genevieve, who is the uh, uh, director of the Houston uh, Funeral Museum, had sent these cassettes to be digitized to her uh, exhibit building company in St. Louis. And they said, okay, well, it'll be $400, please. And she she realized that these cassettes had really no value for the exhibit that she had. Right. So she contacted me and said, look, would Stara be interested in these tapes? And I said, absolutely. So Stara paid the $400. We did pay for the digitizing. And so we're, we've built a new page. You can't see it yet, but it'll show up in November. 18 mp3 audio files and you'll get to hear all of the speakers at the final meeting of the stirp team and so i also went and i'd made some photographs during that meeting which have never been published before so as an adjunct to that new page i've also added a kind of a photo essay showing you the 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 photographs that I made of the people who spoke at that conference. So not only will you be able to hear them, be able to see who they are and what they looked like at that moment in history. We were all young, young guys. Then <laughs> uh, I was 32 when we examined the shroud, John Jackson was nine months older than me, Eric jumper in the same ballpark. We were pretty young guys, uh, but we did have the guys from Los Alamos and Sandia and JPL. And those were all older researchers uh, which is sadly why so many have passed away since then. Of course, we've lost two this year. We lost Larry Schwalbe and just more recently, Tom DiMahala, who mm. was the uh, former president of STIRP and a man who had volunteered his services to join the team. And he became the coordinator and the logistics expert. He's the man who shipped 80 crates of our equipment, <laughs> packaged and shipped 80 crates of our equipment, arranged that with Aritalia. So uh, so Tom DiMahalo was just critical to mm. the Stirp team's project. But I didn't get to know him very well because I was in the California group where all the imaging guys were. And he was in Connecticut, 3,000 miles away. So my interactions with Tom directly were very limited, even throughout the process, because he was not involved directly in the scientific experiments. So, uh, so I didn't get many photographs right. of him. Well, one thing there much. Right, right. And one thing that was interesting uh, on those two papers we talked about earlier was, uh, you know, today we're able to do a, a Zoom conference. We could do a video conference and some point we'll be able to do a 3D something if we wanted to. But back then in 1978, that was just not possible. And you talked about how difficult it was to have a meeting of American researchers and the whole STIRP team that was spread out throughout the country. We were. We were located in, in uh, regional groups, California, New Mexico, Colorado, and then um, the group back east in Connecticut that included uh, Al Adler and John Heller, the uh, blood chemistry guys. 
um, and of course, um, Tom DiMahala and his group the uh, that handled our logistics and administration. So uh, it was amazing how we came together to do all this and pulled it off. It was it was there there was no precedent for it. Mm. You know, a lot of times in science, you can go and see what other research has been done and see what they did so you can learn from their process and perhaps mistakes that they might have uh, documented uh, so that you can fine tune your own plan for your own examination. We didn't have that benefit. There was there was never any science done of any depth before us. There was a little bit here and there, but nothing as formalized as what we did or as in-depth as what we did. So it became, uh, for us, you know, for me, uh, I was overwhelmed. I mean, here I am, and I have a Bachelor of Arts degree, and here I'm in a room with a bunch of PhD physicists <laughs> and chemists. As much talking as I do these days, and people are, know that I do a lot of it, I was virtually silent in those days. <laughs> I, I didn't feel I had very much I could contribute other than to do the best photography that I could. Mm. And that's how I got on the team in the first place. And we've talked about that in the past. Yeah. Uh, it was because of other projects that I had done, including one for Los Alamos, that ultimately led to them inviting me onto the STIRP team. But well, I uh, like the, yeah, sorry. I like the, uh, you know, the, I think it was Ray Rogers and maybe a couple of other ones that said, uh, you know, when we get over there, we've got, on the one hand, you've got 80 crates of stuff. And when we get over there, ah, we're going to find that in 15 minutes, this has been painted or dyed or whatever. And then we can go home Yeah, well, and enjoy I, I the, well, that. actually enjoy the week in Italy and tour Italy. Yeah. And, uh, and whoops, that did not happen. Didn't work out quite that way. But I said that Ray Rogers said that, I mean, uh, when people say we were a bunch of religious fanatics, I have to laugh. I mean, there were three Jewish guys on the team that did not have any theological, emotional attachment to the shroud the way I would expect any Christian to have some, some of that emotional response. But uh, I didn't have that. I mean, I was raised in a half Jewish, half Italian neighborhood, so Catholics and Jews side by mm. side. And we were taught to respect the priests and the nuns that we saw and treat them the same way we would the rabbi. That's what my mother beat into us with a leather belt. <laughs> you, you know that respect. Well, she was an immigrant from Poland herself. And so she raised us sort of with old country values. And that meant a leather belt from time to time. <laughs> I got the uh, <laughs> I got the ping pong paddle. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure I would have welcomed the paddle over the leather belt. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it's that good. So yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, but I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah, I definitely don't want to repeat it. <laughs> but I did learn the lessons that she taught me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now I can. Now I can have my dad arrested for child cruelty. <laughs> but listen, uh, if if somebody used a belt on their children the way my mother used a belt on me, um, yeah, there would be could be legal issues involved. <laughs> but, yeah. so that was the culture that she came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so that was normal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, definitely, my dad too. Uh, let me uh, let me change the subject. Uh, when we were talking uh, about a week ago, as we were prepping for this. You mentioned uh, the 2000 uh, Sindonate conference, I think you'd pronounce it, with uh, Joe Marino's and Sue Benford's announcement of, uh, and, and tell us what they did and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Sindonate 2000 was a conference held in Orvieto uh, in Italy. Um, it was organized and managed by Emanuela Marinelli. It was a great conference. It was held in a castle in Orvieto, there's an, a beautiful old castle that they've renovated into a modern um, uh, event center where you can have conferences of this nature with all the technology and everything that was built in. And so Manuel uh, organized this. And it was at that conference that Joe Marino and Sue Benford got up. And of course, I'm always in the front row with my camera to photograph everybody. And they got up and they presented a paper that was just knocked me out of my chair. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
there was there wasn't anything wrong with the carbon dating. The only thing wrong was they only chose one sample from a really terrible spot, and that that sample was not representative of the main body of the shroud. Well, that was the first explanation for the radiocarbon dating that had come out, and there had been what twelve years of people coming up with all these ridiculous things of what went wrong, and the, they cheated, or the carbon dating did this, or the. All of that was proven wrong. And when Benford Marino got up and provided the first credible alternative that didn't require me to either accept some miraculous science that nobody has yet invented or you know something else, all of a sudden we have a plausible explanation and you didn't need to be a physicist to understand it. And mm -hmm. so I immediately, as they came off the stage, ran up to them and said, look, you got to let me put that on trial.com. And they said, sure, no problem. So we put it on trial.com. And to me, that was the milestone of that conference. Well, we've had a page on our website since that conference, but it only had a scattering of the papers that were presented. Well, uh, not too long ago, Emanuela sent me 61 PDFs. <laughs> all stuck together in one file here, you know, I had to pull them apart. Um, every paper that was presented at that conference, including, of course, the Benford Marino one, which we already had on our site. So now I have to go back in and I have to modify that page after 20 some years, 23 years, and add all of the uh, hmm. papers that were presented besides the ones that we've already included. Now, the good news is they were already listed on the page. We just didn't have links to them. So basically, I'm going to have to create links for all these 61 new ones that Emmanuel <laughs> sent us. But my goal is to get those completed as well for this next update. Uh, so it'll include that. It will include the audio tapes that we talked about, the MP3 audios, of the final STIRP meeting and some other surprises and a couple of other papers and articles that are very important. So again, another massive, huge update coming down the road. And my goal is to get it done by before the end of November. And this is also our last update of the year. And the one time of year where we remind people that we're a 501c3 nonprofit and that before the end of the year, if they make a contribution, we'll send them a receipt that they can use as a tax deduction for their taxes for this year. So we do that once a year, unlike many nonprofits, most nonprofits, that every time you hear from them, it's, they're mm. up for money. <laughs> we don't do that. We, yeah. we, we make it clear we're a nonprofit and we don't have to remind people every time. But once a year, we do make a, a little more... Uh, in-depth attempt you know i've been self-employed for 53 years and it took me a long time to get used to the idea of just asking people to give money because i had to earn every dime along the way yeah i just wasn't very good at telling people oh we'll make a donation i've learned it's only taken me well see the nonprofit started fully functioning in 2010 so 13 years, it's taken me all that 13 years to become more comfortable in reminding people, at least once a year anyway, that we are a nonprofit and that we don't do any advertising or generate any revenue. We don't monetize our visitors, no cookies, no trackers, none of the things that most websites do. We don't do that. You remain completely anonymous on shroud.com unless you choose to join our mailing list. And believe mm. it or not, all you need is an email address to do that. You don't even have to put your name in there. So unless you've chosen to, you can put your name in if you want, but that's optional. So we're not looking to make money from our visitors. Everything on our website is free. There's no page where you have to pay anything to, to read the content. Uh, it's, it's yeah, free. it's a, uh, it's a, it is an absolute wonderful source. And, um, and again, so yeah, to your point, asking for donations, I think, you know, you're right. It's always difficult, but, um, but, you know, if the audience wants to donate money to uh, shroud.com, please go out, get it in there before the end of the year and you can have a good uh, tax write-off. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Very interesting on the things that you're adding and, uh, to your, uh, to shroud.com as an archival, because I think, uh, you know, a hundred years from now that, that, 
that stuff is just going to be very, very important. Well, if we're all around in a hundred years, well, if the world is still around in a hundred years, perhaps. Fair enough. Fair enough. So then, uh, so it's been, uh, and this is, uh, I think, a, a, maybe a harder question for you, but I'm sure you'll have a great answer for you. It's been about 45 years since uh, that uh, that day in October when in 1978, when you started to, uh, you know, actually document the process of the STIRP findings. So over those 45 years, uh, what do you think is the most meaningful moment uh, for you? Well, long term in looking back, I would have to say that the building of the website probably because that altered the course of my life and I had no clue that that was occurring. Uh, but I mean, I never thought of doing a, a nonprofit before that. I mean, it, matter of fact, for the first 14 years of the website, I paid for it out of my own pocket. Um, and so, uh, but then my pocket got empty <laughs> <laughs> and it was time to, and several of my shroud friends had said well you should do a nonprofit, uh and that way you can generate revenue without uh mm. you know having advertising on the website because think about this we we get a couple of million visits a year um if we if we had advertising we could generate a substantial amount of revenue uh through advertising but i just can't feel comfortable imagining an ad on a page with this photograph of the shroud. It just doesn't feel right to me. So uh, we'll never do that as long as I'm alive, that there will be no advertising on shroud.com. But it also means that's a revenue stream that our organization doesn't have. Mm. So our primary revenue comes from sales, from licensing. Uh, it used to come from my honorariums, but I'm no longer traveling. So we now, if I do a virtual talk, we don't charge an honorarium. We allow people to make a contribution at whatever level they want. When I was traveling, it had to be away from the office three to five to six to seven days at a time. Right. Um, Stara was still paying for my time. So Stara said, we need to have an honorarium to offset your being gone because yeah. while I was gone, everything stopped. Right, right, right. I could not continue the work because I still do everything myself. So so the the money part of it was was never a big deal. Once we started the nonprofit, there were always uh, there have always been people willing to support us, and uh, so between the because I'm doing these virtually, I'm now generating again some revenue from honorariums, but not as much as we did in the past when mm. I was traveling and physically showing up in places. Uh, now we don't set a fee. We just say, look, make a contribution at whatever level works for your organization. The advantage of that, however, by doing things virtually is that smaller churches and organizations that could never afford airline tickets and hotels and ground transportation and meals and all this stuff that the expense of, you know, paying somebody to show up, um, that enables me to work with and make presentations to smaller organizations that could otherwise never afford to to have me in person, but I can do it virtually. I just did one yesterday. So mm. um, to me, and it was for a small church, maybe 50, 70 people, something like that. Um, and they're in a relatively poor section of the state they live in and don't have a lot of money. It's not a rich parish. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, I said, look, uh, there's, they said, what's the fee? I said, there is no fee. I said, you can make a contribution if you wish. And so they took up, I think at the end of the talk, they took up a, a, a free will offering from the, the audience and they'll send me a check for whatever they were able to raise. And that's fine. It's never been about the money for me in spite of what certain mm. critics have said. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So um, then uh, if I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think you can get rich, whatever you do. And when, when you're writing a book and, and writing something on the shroud is it's uh, definitely more of a passion than it is a, uh, you know, a, a anything else. Well, for me, it, it's beyond even a passion. I felt it was being in that room with that yeah. piece of cloth for five days and nights was a, a privilege. Mm. And that privilege brought with it a responsibility. And 
that website is the fulfillment of that responsibility. Yeah. That my being there to be the person document. I mean, I didn't start off being the archivist, but I wound up being the archivist. Yeah. So, so yeah. that, that really is the more important than the photographs I made in 1978. <laughs> you know, the website. You know, it almost, is, I, I think it is because, uh, well, the photographs were important, uh, but sure. in terms of uh, the, the uh, the diffusion of knowledge about the shroud uh, shroud.com has made that so easy and one source and having you know such a rich uh, such a rich source of information and anybody can go out there and find out you know different things that you're interested in or whatever that you know I, I think you're right it is a uh, it's a game changer for the whole study of the shroud well I always tell people when you're going to shroud.com, Pack a lunch and a snack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. And be there for a while. Yeah, and maybe a glass of wine if you need to. <laughs> maybe two. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, um, you mentioned a little bit about AI, and I'm going to change the subject a little bit. And uh, you certainly have some restrictions, and and I think rightly so. But um, you said you've been receiving some interesting images that are AI generated of what AI thinks jesus might have looked at looked like based on the image that comes from the shroud tell us a, a little bit about that yeah i've probably in the last i would say in the last six months maybe eight months i've received maybe 20 25 different attempts at getting ai to create a, an image of what jesus would have looked like based on the shroud image and they're all different i mean dramatically different in some cases i'm thinking well ai isn't all that smart just yet because um ai has to be properly trained just mm. like a human being basically and you have to give it accurate information if you expect accurate responses and so part of the problem with if somebody grabs a, a a terrible 10th generation shroud photo off the internet and puts it in AI. My feeling is the reason they're not getting consistent results is because they're using poor quality images. And there's some terrible quality images of the shroud on the internet. Some, I mean, you know, I spoke to somebody yesterday who said that they bought a, a replica of the shroud from Thailand. Well, mm. where do you think the people in Thailand got the image? They pirated it off the internet. Nobody in Thailand ever photographed the shroud. <laughs> so they've stolen images off the internet, which is why I've made it a point from the first day of shroud.com on, we do not put our high resolution photographs on the internet. We do not permit them to be placed on the internet. We have 72 DPI lower res images that look beautiful on the screen that, are, uh, that work perfectly in PowerPoints. That's what I use in my own PowerPoints, but do not give somebody a high enough resolution image where they can start mass producing shroud. Uh, yeah. 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 So, yeah. But, uh, but no, we absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, that makes so much sense. Um, you know, the data uh, and the images and the training of the AI engine uh, that uh, is pretty critical, even for, you know, regular chat GPT, but uh, then certainly on, uh, on images as well. Well, I, I told the guy yesterday, I said, look, he paid $180 for his replica. And I said, well, that's a good deal. But um, how sharp is it? Can you see the stitching around patches and things? Oh, well, no, no, not really. I said, well, that's the difference. Yeah. Our, our life-size replica is printed from a 400 megabyte file. So the details are there. And you've seen our life-size yeah. replica. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got one of your prints. Yeah. So you know that the details are all there because the original film that I shot, which was on four by five inch sheets mm. of uh, two halves, half the shroud at a time with some overlap so that in Photoshop, uh, eventually I was able to combine them into a single file that's 400 megabytes in size. Mm. So you're going to get a lot more than than, uh, you know, you're going to get a lot more detail. Uh, coming from a 400 megabyte image than from a two or three megabyte image that you've stolen off the internet. Yeah. But all the shroud images are technically copyrighted, but that hasn't stopped people from abusing them completely. So 
but not with my photographs. I've been very careful about that. Yeah. Well, and I think that's uh, that right there as well as a, is a legacy for future uh, researchers as well as uh, you know, when you have something like that and, and who knows, it may, it may never happen again that, uh, that there will be, you know, access, uh, direct access to the shroud. We, of course, make our images available to any researcher uh, for people who have pastoral uses of the image. Uh, and we don't charge any money for those things. The only time we charge a licensing fee is for a commercial application, mm. for book, television documentary. These people are making money using our photographs. Okay, <laughs> So we charge a licensing fee. And for TV documentaries, Every production company has at least one person, if not a whole section of their production company called rights and clearances. Yeah. Because the television networks are very fussy about what they put on the air because they, they have deep pockets and don't want to get sued. Yeah. So they make the production companies indemnify the networks. And so the production companies have rights and clearances, people. There isn't a frame of any television documentary that you've ever seen that hasn't been first cleared by rights mm. and clearances within the production company before it ever gets to the network that broadcasts it. So uh, rights and clearances are important. Um, protecting the images, I felt an obligation to do so. And as a professional photographer, it was within my purview. I knew how to protect these images. Yeah, I, I used to teach at Brooks Institute of Photography and introduce copyright law into the curriculum because when I graduated from Brooks, they hadn't taught me anything about copyright law. And when I got into the real world, it was something I had to confront pretty quickly. And so it occurred to me that when they asked me to teach a course, one of the things I included in the course was at least an introduction to the copyright law. This was in 1976, which also happened to be the year that the new copyright law was published. So so it was uh, easy for me. I studied it and I then taught it to the students so that they would have at least a clue of how to protect their own work when they went out into the real world and became professional photographers themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're so right. It is uh, so, so critical. And um, it's important because uh, that is that is your intellectual property. You know, you are the one that, uh, you know, that did that and invested in it and, and invested in all of the knowledge and the experience to be able to take that one shot. Uh, you know, that's um, uh, it's kind of like the story. Uh, you know, the guy goes in, the engineer goes in to repair the ship. And uh, he looks at the problem and the engine and whatever, and he takes out his hammer and he clicks on it once and the thing automatically starts. And then he uh, hands over a bill for $20,000. And the guy says, what's that? And he said, yeah, it only took me about 30 seconds to figure out what the problem was, but it took me 20 years to build up that experience to know exactly how to fix it. Right, exactly. And, and that's exactly the, the issue, you know, with, with stuff like what you're talking about. So it makes a big difference. And and look, that you know, there there have been times where people have uh, criticized me and said, oh, well, you're only in it for the money and all that. And I said, you know, uh, the best thing I can do is give up the ownership of everything, start a nonprofit, legally transfer the photography, the website, and all the other materials that I've accumulated uh, over to the nonprofit, got a lawyer, legally transferred everything properly. Uh, and so any income derived from those images goes directly to Stara, not to me personally. Mm. And I often have to remind people that when they make a contribution, don't make the check to me. We'll, we'll, yeah. re we'll reject that. It has to go to Stara Inc., not to me personally. And Stara pays me a, a monthly stipend, and it's enough to keep me covered. And uh, mm -hmm. Stara doesn't pay rent. Stara doesn't pay utilities. Stara doesn't pay the phone bill or the electric bill or the and trash. And the hosting bill. <laughs> yeah. The only thing Stara pays for are direct expenses from the website, mm. uh, the internet, um, the uh, uh, web, uh, web services and stuff of that nature. That's it. So yeah. the money Stara pays me still has to cover the overhead, which Stara is not covering. So yeah. I don't 
get to take home everything Stara pays. <laughs> it goes to keep everything going. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. And I and and I can imagine, and uh, we've talked about it uh, separately, certainly as the the uh, the shroud.com because of its enormity that it's actually you know relatively expensive to maintain that so uh it is it's not you know it's not horribly bad but then we can do things like paying the four hundred dollars to get the digitizing done of the uh, mm. audio sets so that um we can make those available to the public yeah. and so we have you know resources that we use we we've got some other projects uh, that we're working on bill meacham who's on our board of directors is doing an isotope study on some of the shroud samples that we that we've had, uh, and this was something that uh, our board of directors approved, and uh, and these are just a couple of minor samples, but Meacham yeah. is working yeah that. yeah and it all the, comes together yeah once uh, once he gets some results and reports them to us he'll probably write a paper that will get published and then we'll link to that paper so yeah. so we're still participating in research and there's a couple of other projects that are going on that i can't actually talk about sure much, um that are that are happening so uh so the resources that we have are being applied strictly for the shroud nothing else i mean there's yep. no other uh <clears throat> no perks uh i'm yep. not, not taking any trips in private jets <laughs> well that's good so, uh, well, Barry, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and, and it's always a pleasure, you know, for me to be able to talk with you and then basically spread the word about the shroud and, and, uh, and what its meaning is. And then certainly all the stuff that you've done, which is just, uh, enormous in terms of promoting it. So, uh, thank you so much for today. And, and again, uh, they can reach you. Uh, where is that? Uh, I don't think we mentioned it once in, uh, during the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe shroud.com shroud.com. Absolutely. And, uh, that is, uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but just again, shroud.com. And then there is this enormous wealth of, uh, of information and archival and, and links to, uh, some great stuff out there. Barry, thank you again. My pleasure, Guy. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So otherwise, for the audience, please stay tuned uh, for this and many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And then please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for this episode. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Thank you so much, Barry, and thank you to everyone. Take care, Guy. Thank you. Thank you.